Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Daniel Handler, whose latest novel is titled Bottle Grove. There are six other novels under the name Daniel Handler, one of which is All the Dirty Parts, which we will talk about. Uh, we Are Pirates is another one. Uh, there's also three not novels, Girls Standing on Lawns, Hurry Up and Wait, Weather Weather. There's also an entire series of books written under the name of Lemony Snicket, which includes a series of unfortunate events. And we'll be talking a little bit about the film, which wasn't very good, and the Netflix series, <laughs> which was also the playwright of The Composer is Dead, which was at Berkeley Rap. Yes, indeed. A couple of years ago. But first I want to talk about the works of Daniel Handler before we get into Lemony. All the Dirty Parts is a very short book, first person from the perspective of a high school kid who was perpetually horny. What prompted you to write All the Dirty Parts? Well, a few years ago, I was asked to be on a panel at the American Library Association about encouraging young men to read, which if you are a man and you write for young people is often what you are asked to do. And I'm usually not that good at it because when I was a young man, I loved to read. So I didn't really have any advice on how to get young men to read because that was automatic for me. That's so often what you're asked to do if you're a young man writing for men. Um, There's a um, significant age gap in reading, particularly for pleasure, and during adolescence kind of depends on how you study it, but certainly there's a um, sizable gender gap however you slice it. Coincidentally, while trying to figure out what to say on this panel, my mom was clearing out the house, and she gave me this pile of books. She said, oh, I found these in your room. These are your books. These aren't my books. And they were kind of all of my favorite books from high school and a little bit of the beginning of college. I was a very serious reader by then. I was very committed to literature already. It was a collection of pretty much pretty high literature as far as that went. But I started to reread it and think about myself at that age. And one thing that they all had in common was that they were all extremely sexual. The Mambo Kings play Songs of Love and the New York Trilogy, uh, books by Henry Miller, and even books that we don't think of as explicitly erotic, like Beloved by Toni Morrison, that actually has quite a lot of kind of sex and sensuality in it. Milan Kundera, all of these authors who are really exploring sexuality. That was just what I was interested in as a young man, you know, and they weren't serving some pornographic purpose for me. They were just the books that I like to read. And I realized that for young people, the most surveillance topics are sexual. When the list of banned books for young people comes out every year, it's always because of sexual content. I just began to think about those two things, that we know that there's a gender gap in reading. We know that there's a subject that young men are interested in. 
obviously it's not the only thing they're interested in, and obviously young men are not the only interested people, but that we cut out what is very interesting to a segment of the reading population that we're concerned aren't reading. And so with that in mind, I was suddenly paying more attention to uh, the literature that was being given to adolescents and just watching it for that and watching how the male uh, story of sexuality is so often absent from that. So I just started to think about young men and I started to think about the kind of young man who's very sexually active in high school. We all knew someone like that. But that's just about not in evidence from the culture that male sexuality in literature and culture is either you're either kind of a monster or you are a bumbling buffoon. You know, oh, I can't get this girl into bed, silly me, or I'm preying upon this girl. And there's no sex the way a lot of people have sex when they're young, which is, well, that was delicious, may I have another? And so I wanted to think about that, and I just started peering more into that world. The internet obviously was not around when I was a young'un and has changed that landscape significantly. And I just began to talk to young men I knew and kind of any man who was younger than I was about what that situation was like. And um, the book came from there. And so originally it was going to be published for young people. A previous novel of mine, Why We Broke Up, was about teenage love and won a little prize for uh, young adult literature and things like that. But after really about a year of thinking about it, my publisher for young people finally just didn't think that they could do it. Sure enough, when the novel was published, technically for adults, though certainly I've heard from a number of young people who are reading it, I wrote an editorial in The Times just kind of telling the story that I just told now. And the same librarians who go after kind of dangerous culture were very uh, furious with me over what to me just seemed like a simple truth. We'd like more young men to read. They're not seeing an aspect of their lives mirrored in literature. And in fact, that aspect is being so heavily policed in literature for young people that they're not finding it. And so no wonder they're not reading. What I found in, in reading all the dirty parts is it brought me back to the fact of when I was a teenager and in my 20s, 90% of the time, all I thought about was sex. I kept thinking I must be weird and then I talked to other people and except for those moments when I was reading and doing other things, it was always there and I kept thinking this is the first book I've seen that kind of deals with it and if we repress it, we wind up with incels and Stephen Miller. I hope that the book tries to take a, a look at what that is and that between our sexualized culture and I think some innate sense of biology, certainly male adolescent biology, I think that we don't really have a grip for how that can be expressed and we're rightfully vigilant about expressions of sexuality and we don't want anyone to be hurt. But I do think that we can't think of how that goes or how that would go. I think particularly in the land of pornography, which is so easy. It's not the holy grail of accessibility that it was for previous generations where you kind of find some precious magazine that you hold close to you for many years that now it's just omnipresent. And I think that the kind of liberational aspects of that culture being accessible, which is a lifelong San Franciscan, I've watched people find so much solace and so much joy in finding themselves free to express themselves sexually and seeing their own sexual self-expression in the culture. So I think that's very powerful, but also it's very damaging. I mean, constant pornography is largely misogynistic. And I think that if we believe that the culture we are experiencing has some effect on us and we know that there's omnipresent misogyny available to people, 
all the time, we can't help but think that that has an effect. And so I certainly don't know how to um, get out of the tangle of sexuality and danger that our culture is in, like any other culture. But I think that you have to start by having a conversation about what is going on and that a huge part of young men's lives in the first world, certainly, is pornography and sexual desire and how that's happening. It hit a nerve for me about partway through when I began seeing exactly what you were doing. It took a little while because at the beginning I'm just going, I don't really care about this guy and his yeah. conquests. But then after a while you see what's really going on, which is about the sexual drive and how it's kind of omnipresent. And this particular kid has trouble dealing with it, as do the boys and girls around him and their own issues. But what, what struck me is that when you start repressing it and when you start ignoring it, you wind up with boys abusing girls. You wind up with violence. You wind up – I mean it's always young men who are doing the, the killing with guns. And Yeah, I mean it's hard not to think of those two things in the same sentence for sure. We see more and more biological correspondence between sexuality and, and violence, and I think that certainly culturally we see that a lot as well. I think it's difficult territory to navigate, and I certainly wouldn't want to put myself out there as uh, an expert or anyone who has a prescription for this, but um, it was something I saw missing from literature that seems um, worth describing, and there's hardly any portrayals of um, male sexuality, particularly largely straight male sexuality, although it's he, not like quite. men are, are pretty flexible <laughs> on that. Um, the phrase any old port in a storm comes to mind. But there's so little of that. And there's so it's so easily labeled as predatory. It's so easily labeled for uh, mockery that I think it's no wonder that so many young men don't know what to do with that kind of sexual energy. That if you're told that you're either ridiculous for even thinking about it and dream on and what a bumbler you are and how silly it is or that it's uh, revolting and monstrous and it's a huge part of where your consciousness is at, I think that's going to have bad results. Daniel Handler, let's talk about your newest book, Bottle Grove. It's a San Francisco book, takes place in San Francisco. Bottle Grove, it's a fictional place that could be located in Golden Gate Park. It might be up by Legion of Honor. Yeah, originally in thinking about this book, I was thinking about the kind of wild places in San Francisco, the natural spots, and San Francisco was lucky enough to have a bunch of them. And they're not necessarily manicured parks. They're kind of wild patches that have been preserved but not necessarily taken care of that well. Corona Heights is one of them. Certainly, Corona Heights is one of them. My first thought was Stern Grove, which is near where I grew up. But as I designed the novel, I saw it was a lot more fun to take a lot of liberty with San Francisco geography and to kind of play around with it. So I was very much inspired by Rebecca Solnit's Atlas of San Francisco in which she takes a million different axes and looks in San Francisco that way. And so... Bottle Grove, which is about a changing San Francisco and about um, people trying to make their way in a changing San Francisco. I liked playing with the idea that there's still these wild patches, but that you can't use this novel as a map to get to them. What prompted the story of these two couples and this strange fox-like creature? 
Well, marriage is a big theme in the novel, and that really started with me when San Francisco was at the forefront of a conversation about gay marriage, which I then supported and still support, obviously. And when Gavin Newsom was marrying people in City Hall as kind of a social action and protest, I had people who were flying out, friends of mine, and sleeping on my floor to get married. And one thing that I was really thinking about was the definition of marriage, which was bandied about mostly by right-wing sources in terms of something shameful. But I was really thinking about it seriously and how when you get close to people who are married and often you don't hear stories until a marriage is going sour, that you get all these portraits of marriages that have nothing to do with yours or you know, something that would cause you much joy and be no big deal maybe as a huge barrier in other people's relationships and vice versa. And I like the idea that we all wander around, so many of us are married or have been married, and that we share this illusion that it's the same thing. Oh, you're married, I'm married, here's something that we have in common, and yet it's as obviously as individual as being single, as being an individual. I think there's also a notion that there's some kind of civilizing influence of being married, that you're settling in, that you are um, more of a complete person when you're married, that somehow you're answerable to someone else, which kind of keeps you in check. I liked putting that against San Francisco, which is changing so much, and there's all this kind of supposedly civilizing money and structure coming in, but also it's the kind of wild and freaky San Francisco that seems most in danger and something that we most love. So I like putting the idea of marriage and the idea of a San Francisco across one another. And then the fox kind of links those both together. It happened when I was taking a walk in my neighborhood. You saw and a fox? And I saw a fox. And, really? Uh, yeah. In San Francisco? Oh, yeah. And my neighborhood is now quite crawling with coyotes and foxes. What neighborhood is that? It's right near Corona Heights, actually. You know, it's a pretty quiet residential neighborhood, and I'm sure there were always such creatures someplace, but now they are walking down the street in broad daylight. They are displaced by so much of the new construction that's going on. And I really liked the idea of these wild creatures who are sort of invisible, like so much of a city is invisible, just really coming out to the forefront. And I think particularly a fox who is universally regarded as devious. I started just reading about foxes, and in every single culture, foxes have the same profile. That's not true of a lot of other animals. You know, you might go someplace and a snake is thought of one way and a snake is thought of another way over here, but the fox is always devious, always kind of amoral, and it began to feel to me not a coincidence that Fox News has been so (laughs) duplicitous and sneaky and... I began reading all of these folktales of foxes, and I really settled upon an old French classic, Reynard the Fox, which was extremely popular centuries ago. Um, Reynard the Fox was like Mickey Mouse, kind of every kid in the West knew who he was, now largely forgotten, but there's been a beautiful recent translation that I used, and I just like the idea of this kind of unpredictable, amoral, constantly shifting loyalty and constantly able to disguise itself uh, figure, which fit right into my mind to a changing San Francisco and to marriage as well. At the end of the book, you list a few books that influence this book, and the two couples, one of which clearly is based a little bit on Rebecca, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. And yeah. is the other My Darling Clementine? My Darling Clementine has a scene that I've always loved, which I replay in the book. Bottle Grove in the novel is not only the name of this little park, but it's also the name of a bar, and a lot of it takes place in a bar. And there's a great exchange in My Darling Clementine where our hero says to the bartender, have you ever been married? And the bartender, who has hardly done anything in the movie except 
you know, polished glasses as they do in Westerns. The bartender says, no, I've been a bartender all my life. And I liked the idea <laughs> that, um, of the kind of restrained, solitary masculinity that is often kind of projected by barmen. I mean, they're, it's a type of person who uh, is that kind of bartender. Certainly, there are plenty of happily married, outgoing men and women who are bartenders, but the kind of bartender type was very appealing to me. The book is dedicated to a famous bartender in San Francisco who we lost a couple of years ago, very young. His name was Daniel Hyatt. He was kind of a star bartender at this bar called Alembic on Haight Street, which is part of the inspiration for the uh, bar and this book. I really liked talking with him. He was someone who came from a blue-collar background who was very eager to have this beautiful oasis of uh, shiny liquor in San Francisco and was always a little bit scheming when he was seeing all this new money come into town of kind of, how can I make my bar still this beautiful, isolated, freaky San Francisco thing and also, please, will tech guys come and blow a lot of money on expensive scotch? That's really what I need. And I liked talking to him that way. And I think he pretty much learned that that balance was unsustainable and like a lot of lifelong bartenders, he was not always the wisest person with his own personal choices. But I liked him as a symbol of San Francisco. And as I was writing the book, I was always had a kind of secret notion that I would give him a copy and he would get a kick out of it. And then we lost him. Then he died. And so that also felt like a kind of elegiac moment in San Francisco that someone like that found that to be a freaky local San Franciscan pursuing your own weird vision and trying to be next to this new rash of new money and how expensive it is to run a business turned out to be unsustainable for him. He was such a figure in this town, and there's certainly many people who uh, know him better, but he and I always got a kick out of each other. When the bar first opened and my wife and I would go in there sometimes, I eventually gave him this uh, old book by Bernard DeVoto called The Hour, which is about the cocktail hour. And um, it was reissued recently by Tin House Books, and they asked me to write an introduction for it because I'm such a fan of the book. And I really had a certain clicky connection between literature, he was a big reader, and, and drinking. And at the end of the book, you also mention that there's a secret structure based on a pop album. And I'm not going to ask you to explain, but what's the pop album? <laughs> No, I will, I, I'm sorry, I'll, I can only do the opposite. I can only explain and not give you the pop album. But I like a structure when I'm writing. Um, I find it really helps me. And I like a novel that has an interesting structure. And I like a novel that has a structure that I might not be able to figure out. I kind of stumbled upon the idea of shaping the book after an album. So it has the number of chapters that are the same as the tracks on the record. And there are a couple of clues hidden in the text of the book that might point you to the record. But for me, it was just the challenge of thinking about rock and roll and writing fiction. And um, so many authors are drawn to that connection. So many authors are inspired by music, by jazz and by rock and by uh, really all kinds of music. And I really wanted to, to work with the idea and to listen to this album over and over again, which I admire so much and try to figure out kind of how that might work in a literary context. People are already um, kind of finding me on various media to give me guesses about the record. It's not super impossible to find, and I'm sure it will be all over the Internet someday. You have a character named The Vic, who is the ultimate tech billionaire. Yeah. It's pretty vague exactly who he is, but in my mind, I kept thinking Zuckerberg-ish. Well, I mean, somewhere in there. 
the idea of marriage as a long con, which is kind of one of the ideas that happens with the character of the Vic in the story, I was tempted to, in fact, call him the Mark because I like the idea of the Mark in a con game and someone named Mark. But um, I don't have any particular knowledge of Zuckerberg or any poison arrow set out for him. But I think that there's a kind of man, and there are a lot of them in the Bay Area currently, who have some big idea that's a little vague, have clearly not thought out all of the potentially disastrous consequences, and are being hailed as a kind of flawless visionary. And I think we're seeing that curdle over a little bit. And certainly Mark Zuckerberg, who had the idea that we should all be talking to each other on Facebook, but now doesn't really know what to do about Russian misinformation flooding and changing elections as a result, I think is an example of of this kind of mindset that there, it's very entitled, it's very male, and that you meet all these guys. I mean, you can't really walk around San Francisco without running into someone who says, I have this great idea, and the world's about to change, and all the money's coming my way, and I'm the king of the universe. And the idea is often a variant on something that's been happening for a long time, right? It's basically a taxi. It's basically a hotel. Right. It's basically calling someone on the phone. You know, it's basically buying an album. It's basically, it's all these things that we've been doing for a very long time that San Francisco is full of, um, I just invented this thing. You'll never guess what. You go sleep in someone else's bed and you pay them. Well, the, the thing I kept thinking about was um, apparently, you know, the guy who created Uber just bought like a $30 million mansion. And then on the other hand, Uber has never made money. And you start thinking, well, wait a second. Something is amiss. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's very easy to get caught up in the excitement of it. And it's also very easy to scorn it. Like You can see things uh, that look like castles in the sky that turn out to be built on sand to mix metaphors and cliches at the same time. But I think it's also important to remember when we talk about technological change that we're all kind of culpable in it and that I was one of the last holdouts for a cell phone but now like everyone else I have a small machine made by underpaid children you know with in, with which I can summon up a car I can summon up a meal I can do all these things that all of us like to do and it's very easy to say oh look at these tech guys and they're spoiling the neighborhood and they're doing this but I think unless you are living in a cave and wearing a pelt you have some answering to do for your relationship to technology Daniel Handler there have been 13 series of Yeah, there are 13 volumes in a series of unfortunate events. And then there are four Lemony Snicket books as well. Uh, there's another series called All the Wrong Questions, which is a kind of a prequel to a series of unfortunate events. And then there are assorted other Lemony Snicket books. I, well, um, I don't have a real job, so I get a lot done on the book side. There was a movie which you were fired from. Yes. And that was the movie with Meryl Streep and Jim Carrey. Mm-hmm. It didn't generate enough interest to complete the series and kind of faded away. I think Who? that's a fair commercial assessment. I don't have access to the Paramount uh, <laughs> right. accounting records. But. So so how, how did the idea of going back and turning it into a Netflix series, did they approach you? Did you approach them? They or? did. They approached me. And it took a little talking because I worked very hard on the movie and it was not full of pleasure with me. The work that I did, some of it was fun, and uh, the way it turned out certainly seemed to bring some people excitement and happiness, so I'm happy for that. But it took some doing, but I think always from the beginning, even though the notion of several seasons of television that are released very quickly and that are also of a limited run was certainly less prevalent in the culture when 
um, a series of unfortunate events was still coming out. But I think there was always the idea there of, oh, this would make a great miniseries. I mean, no one says miniseries anymore, but they keep making them, basically. It was very appealing for Netflix. They wanted to start children's programming. They hadn't really done any children's or family programming, and so they were looking for that um, opportunity. And then one of the big... Uh, challenges with filming a series of unfortunate events when the movie was made is that child actors age very quickly. And if you have a family of orphans that look like they're in their 30s, suddenly the notion of, oh no, what will we do? Our guardian is terrible, doesn't really have the same potent feeling that it might. And so what was appealing to Netflix was that we could film this all very quickly. You Um, filmed all three seasons. We in filmed all three seasons. Uh, we filmed the second and third seasons absolutely in a row, and we filmed. There was a small gap between the first and the second seasons, mostly so we could get our act together. But that was always the notion that we were going to um, barrel ahead and do all of it. And so there was challenges of that, and it felt like a crazy Cecil B. DeMille experience from time to time, and so many changes that need to be made and it was mostly filmed just about all of it was filmed in warehouses in Vancouver whenever I visited the set there would be one set that they were filming on another set that they were tearing down and another set that they were building that's the opposite of how most TV works what most TV companies want and if you think about TV shows you've seen is a very limited set experience They love a police show. Everyone's at the station. They love a bar show. Everyone's at the bar. Everyone's in an apartment. You know, a very small number of sets that they can build and then just use for season after season. And so the idea of, well, now they're on top of a mountain and they're never going to be at the top of this mountain again was very stressful for everyone involved. But it was an opportunity to have a lot of fun and do a lot of interesting work. And I had a great writer's room. The first season got off to an uneven uh, start with a writer's room, and we had to make a lot of changes at the last minute. For the second and third seasons, I had a very small group of writers in my dining room here in San Francisco. We made lunch for them every day. We had coffee when it was coffee time. We had cocktails when it was cocktail hour, and we all worked together in a super non-competitive but very dynamic environment. That was, for me, the crux of what was so fun about it was working with a really a fun and diverse group of writers, and they're all they're all going on to further triumphs in television now. Uh, the series has won a few writing prizes and things like that, and I'm just really proud of my writers' room. Was it one of those situations where you assign a writer to write a particular segment, and then they bring it back, and you just go over it again? Well, what I really wanted to do was create an environment that was where people could work together on what was best for the show and not worry about their own individual credit on their own individual profile. And so um, what I wanted to do was that all of us would share credit for all of the episodes. Netflix balked at that for various logistical and financial reasons. And so we divvied up credit kind of best we could. So everybody was guaranteed to get credit for an episode that they wrote all by themselves, which is a big deal. And these people were new to television, and so for them it was really important for their resumes. And then once that was done, it was really great that someone could come in and say, I've worked on this. It's horrible. Please, someone take this scene from me and make it work. Or let's all read it out loud. What's working, what's not working? And suddenly people could stand up for what they thought on the story, not necessarily, oh, this is my joke, and it's really important that my joke get there so I can tell everybody it's my joke, or I had this idea and I really need it, but instead, what's best for this thing? And so it worked out 
very well. And the writers that I found were mostly came from playwriting. So they were used to producing a lot of material and throwing it away, which is very big and doing a play. So there was Sigurd Gilmer, who's a great playwright, who's on another show now. There's uh, Joshua Conkle, who was one of the first uh, people to bring trans issues to the stage, and he is doing great work, too. And there's Joe Trace, who just had a Broadway hit with Be More Chill, which was another adaptation of a, a young people's thing. And then Aziza Abu-Butain, who was our assistant in the room and who has uh, now moved on to being a great writer herself. So I was really proud to work with those writers. They worked really hard, and I think it's the scripts that... I think managed to give the show the energy that it really needed and gave the visual people the inspiration they needed to kind of get carte blanche to be ridiculous. And the actors all had a great time for it. The actors mostly largely came from stage. Neil Patrick Harris, of course, has um, been on a lot of TV before, but it is a big Broadway guy kind of at heart. Uh, Patrick Warburton. Anyway, I'll go on and on about them. But just what I liked about them is that they were all pros. They all memorized their lines. If we said, sorry, we just rewrote your speech and you're going to have to do this new thing. They said, okay, great. Do I enter from the left or to the right? They were used to this kind of high energy of working and they had to work really, really hard. I'm aghast at the number of hours that Neil Patrick Harris spent in various makeup chairs, dipping, you know, highly caffeinated drinks from super narrow straws so that nothing would blur on his face so we could get and do this thing. He worked unbelievably hard and I think it's a virtuoso performance for sure. In terms of being the writer of the initial books, what were your feelings when things began to shift or change? Did you did you feel like, no, we have to have this? And were you accepting of everything? Did you add changes yourself? I did all of those things. I mean, it's very challenging to do it. And it's like changing a recipe, kind of. You want to say, what is it that makes this so delicious? And how do we change things that need to be changed for the purposes of television? The idea was that people who were fans of the books would feel not that it was an exact copy, but that nothing had been removed that they were objecting to. And I think for the most part, we did that. But yeah, there are a lot of things that you can't do on television that you can do very easily in a book to try to make that work was really good. And again, I had just really committed writers who read all the books very carefully and thought about them very hard and, you know, tried to see where we could make something that was exciting. And Neil Patrick Harris came into it because he wanted to, or you guys contacted him with the thought that he'd never do it? Yeah. I mean, I saw him perform at a Tony Awards. Um, I wasn't at the Tony Awards. I just watched it on YouTube like everybody else. But he did a really funny musical number that was both a send-up of musical numbers and so clearly, sincerely a musical number. And that's really what we needed for the character of Count Olaf was someone who makes fun of the idea of a villain, but then is also really villainous. And so we looked at a bunch of very dark theatrical actors who we couldn't see how they were going to bring any camp to it. And then we looked at a lot of comic actors who are funny the second they go on camera, but don't have this aura of menace. And so I had a feeling he could do it. And it did take, my understanding is it took some persuasion. I'm not, I wasn't on the the contractual persuasion end of the process. But I think like any actor, he was nervous about doing something that was largely for young people when he that wasn't necessarily his area of expertise. And then I think just the exhaustion of being in a million disguises and relocating to Vancouver, Canada, basically, for a chunk of his time. His real blessing, not only as a performer, was that because his career started when he, he was a child with Doogie Howser. 
that he really kept an eye on the young actors in a way that I hadn't anticipated because he is really a success story in terms of, you know, someone who was very famous at a very young age and has not made a mess of his life at all. Very stable marriage, is certainly as far as an outsider can tell, and is raising children. And it's just a pretty much a normal person when you talk to him. And he really had his eye on our two young leads and some of the other guests on the show who are also young people. And he really, he treated them with respect, but he also kept an extra eye on them and made sure that they were not being led into the kind of ugly world that we know of so many young performers. And I hadn't thought of that. That wasn't part of my thinking of who could cast for the show about who would be a good coach for young actors, but he really was. How long did the uh, filming take from beginning to end? Because the baby grew a little bit, but not the other. Just can't stop those babies from growing. (laughs) It was about two years, I think, overall. Yeah, I'm trying to think. It was a long time, particularly the second and third seasons were filmed just about back to back. There was like a three-week break or something. Did Um, you film in sequence? We did, just about, yeah. Not every scene in sequence, but every volume in sequence. We were very concerned about how people were going to look. We hired the youngest leads that we felt like we could hire, which again goes against television. Everyone liked to hire someone who is legally an adult so they can work for a lot longer and don't have to be tutored on set. But we had to find kind of the youngest people we could find so that by the end of the series, they didn't look like chain-smoking oldsters. (laughs) I love the theme. It was one of the first times that I actually listened to the theme (laughs) straight through every time. Yeah. We had a great time with that. You wrote the lyrics. I wrote the lyrics, and the composer who's who leads the band, Devotchka, is a super talented guy. Yeah, he just dove right in. It was really fun. Again, and Neil Patrick Harris sings it, and he sings part of it and a different voice for each disguise that he's in. So he was really up for it. Yeah, that was a great time. And we won a um, small prize for it. I can't think of the name of it. It's really astonishing how many award shows there are in Hollywood. So every so often you hear that you've won something, and it's Honestly, the largest trophy I've ever seen in my life. It looks like I've won the Heisman or something. But yeah, it's for that little theme. Daniel Handler, a few years back, there was a flap with Jacqueline Woodson. Yeah. You made some jokes that didn't go over too well. That would be an understatement, sure. (laughs) And there was a lot of pushback where years passed that and you've done penance, (laughs) if you want to call it that. Okay. I mean, I understand going one step further and not knowing you're doing that. But how do you deal with the after effects of that? Jackie Woods and I have been friends for a gazillion years. There's a actually a reference to her work in a book that was published almost 20 years ago uh, in a Snicket book. And certainly I was trying to honor her and did not do a good job of that. It was a story that I was telling, and it was a story that I think for the most part was understood in the room. It's very clear now that we're in a culture where there's no such thing as something that's good for a room. It kind of has to be good for everybody. And I think that that's a real challenge for people who are in a room. And so part of it is certainly that I think most people who heard that, you know, had no idea that I had any kind of relationship with Jacqueline Woodson were probably not that familiar with Jacqueline Woodson's work. And certainly it was, yeah, I mean, it was a time when people were heightened to do that, which is not an excuse really for saying the wrong thing. But I do think it's part of the context of that is that now we kind of understand that we're in a fishbowl of surveillance than any visible person and a lot of not visible people will have something, you know, will have a 20-second thing that the world is looking at and deciding that they think is terrible. So, I mean, it was very, very hard on Jackie, I think, most of all, and I think that it 
that was what was hardest for me is that she was a friend of mine and I've been a fan of her work forever. And it was such a triumph and such a beautiful night when she won the National Book Award. And I, you know, all I wanted to do was to make people know of how smart she is and how thoughtful she is about um, so many poignant issues in our time. And instead, it really looked like uh, I wanted to insult her. There's not people thinking I'm nicer than they thought previously. Is not really a high priority of mine. But it was really hard, and I feel really uh, bad still for the fact that kind of Jackie had to answer to a million things at once. And instead of talking about her own work, she had to like talk about some dude who said the wrong thing. And that's tough. I think it comes down to what you were saying before, which is that we're in such a fishbowl, particularly someone who's well-known, that any, anything one says could be taken any number of ways and it will suddenly be all over the Twitter first. Well, I mean, I think it's both. I don't want to use the an excuse that someone took me wildly out of context and I'm an right. Indian party in this at all. But I do think we're in a moment where that happens a lot and even something that is, you can be justifiably offended by goes so much further and there's so much fury about it. And I don't think anyone really knows what to do. And about maybe two years before it happened, it started happening to other people I knew who were kind of visible in the culture. Suddenly, I, I remember I was on the phone with someone and I was saying to them, you know, it's really tough and if there's anything you want, need me to do to kind of help you and I'm sure this is super hard. And as these words came out of my mouth and I realized I'd said them to so many people, I remember having this moment of, oh, this is going to happen to me. Wow. I don't know when, <laughs> and I don't know what it's going to be, and I don't know kind of what it will hinge on. Well, but it was a real moment of, uh, I suddenly realized, I am saying what is going to be said to me. And it, then it happened totally unexpectedly. The night of the awards was a beautiful night. You know, Jackie and I were, like, dancing on the dance floor afterward. In the morning, uh, there was new context for it. And I don't blame people for being upset, certainly, but um, it is a um, it is a startling thing. And I think now... You see it so often. And you see it in a good context, too. Oh, look, here's a motorcyclist who helped a, uh, you know, someone on the corner in Amsterdam. Aren't they wonderful? But there's a lot of, look what this person did. And I don't know if that moves us forward as a society in any particular way. Well, I think it's got to do with the nature of social media, which is an entirely different subject and perhaps something you might write a, a novel about. Who knows? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're in a moment in a culture where so much is being looked at by so many people. There's a question. Just curious about this. Okay. Daniel Handler starts out just a writer, normal guy. And well, insofar as Daniel Handler is right. normal. You've interviewed too many writers to say just a normal guy about a writer. <laughs> but, uh, but um, and most of them most of the writers I've interviewed, you know, they have their their moment in the sun and then they go back in and sit in front of their computer or right. write long, longhand. One of the issues for someone who has the kind of success you have is that suddenly out of the blue, you're rich and you're in a completely different universe. How does that affect Daniel Handler? Oh, gosh. Well... It's certainly very startling. I mean, I don't think anyone goes into writing fiction and particularly writing fiction for young people with the idea that they're that they're going to be publicly known for that. I grew up 
reading literature and loving literature, and I read and love literature to this day, and most of the literature that I read is not what anybody would call famous. I always assumed that was the company I was going to be in, and it's still the company that I feel that I'm in. I think a novel like Bottle Grove, to me, is in conversation with other novels. It's not in conversation much with kind of popular culture. But yeah, it's very strange. I mean, I lived in New York for a little bit and moved back to my hometown of San Francisco. And when I moved back here, I was just getting published. And I really had a notion that I would not be able to afford to live here for my whole life. And I watch, of course, countless other artists who have been um, priced out of San Francisco and then increasingly the Bay Area at large. And that was, you know, it's there, but for the grace of God to go I, for sure. I mean, it is a blessing, obviously, um, to be able to afford to be an artist for a living. And it's a blessing to have the sort of money that where I get to give it away. And I'm happy when I have opportunity to um, help other people and certainly other artists with um, the financial support that my wife and I like to give to organizations we love. I mean, it's it's strange. It's positive, but it's stranger than it is positive. I think. <laughs> I've talked to authors who have had sudden success, but never. But this has been for a while now, and it continues. <laughs> and it's also. I wish tr- it felt less sudden. It had been a while, but it never ceases to amaze me. <laughs> but but the odd thing, of course, is that Daniel Handler, the writer, as Daniel Handler, is successful, but you know, yeah. moderate. But Daniel Handler is Lemony Snicket as something else again. Yeah, I mean, it's a peculiar feeling, but I'm often asked one form or another of this question, and it always seems that what someone assumes is that I'm somehow resentful of one kind of attention that I get and not another kind, and um, I'm not. I mean, it is, I never thought I would get any attention. The writers that I admire the most are often not writers who get any attention at all, and just the idea that I would say, there's a parade in my honor, but the balloons aren't the color that I like is just not um, in well, my vocabulary. Well, it also allows you, Lemony Snicket allows you to write Bottle Grove without having to worry necessarily. It's definitely a blessing to get to work on books and not have a panic that if something doesn't work out, I you know, will begin the long spiral into poverty and desperation. So I'm grateful for that. But, you know, I think art making, you have to follow your own path wherever it is. And so I'm grateful for the opportunity that I get to write a a strange book like Bottle Grove and have anyone pay attention to it at all. But I do think also that making a strange novel like Bottle Grove also helps me write a Netflix show. You know, that the the, um, creative satisfaction and artistic learning that you do when you make something helps you make something else. Daniel Handler, are you working on another novel, another Netflix series, anything? Uh, I am always working on another novel. Uh, yeah, I am working on another novel that is um, a, a secret, as it usually is. I'm working on some more theater stuff. I worked on, a, as you said, The Composer's Dad for Berkeley Rap, and then a, an original play, Imaginary Comforts, which was produced at Berkeley Rap recently. And I really liked the theatrical experience, and I liked working with the theatrical uh, actors on Netflix. So... I'm working on some more theater stuff as well, which is good. What about film versions of any of your novels or the There's other? There's always talk of them, but, you know, I don't like to um, 
It's always embarrassing. You go on mic and you say, any minute now they're going to start filming this thing and then it falls through and then six years later it looks good again and then it doesn't happen. So the, and so I've sworn off doing it. But yeah, there's there's always talk of it and you never know what's going to happen until they do it. So it must have been a phenomenal moment when you went up to Vancouver and you saw them building sets. You know, honestly, even then I thought, not until my mother calls me and says, here it is on Netflix, I'm watching it. Do I really believe that something has happened? There was always time for it to go wrong. What was the feeling like? Like just before it dropped, the first season, were you scared? How were you feeling? Um, I mean, it's this strange thing where you are you're excited for people to see it, but then you don't get to be part of that process anymore. You're you, there's nothing you can do about it. You it's all done now. And then, curiously, it's not that different from releasing a book because you don't get to watch people read see it on Netflix, just like you don't get to watch them read. You know. It, you don't get to know if they're curled up on the sofa, um, delighted with every frame of a television show you've made, or if it's just kind of on and then they go to get popcorn and they're not really that interested. And it's the same with a book. You fantasize that, you know, they're fully awake, savoring every sentence of yours, but you know how reading a book goes. You put it down for a little bit. You say, oh, it's okay. You move on. And so, uh, yeah, it's a nerve-wracking feeling, but it was um, – there was a little um, – opening night of Netflix uh, uncharacteristically for television. And so the first couple episodes were shown in a movie theater in New York, and there was an audience there. And that was fun to just hear, hear some people laugh and to feel like there was some excitement about it. But more, it's been a kind of a growing experience that as I go out and talk about a book like Bottle Grove or when I go and talk about Lemony Snicket somewhere, that I meet people who are doing, I think, what I always hoped for and certainly what Netflix hoped for, which is a whole family watching it and having a good time. And that's fun. I treasure those memories of things that I saw growing up with my family, you know, where we're all laughing or we're all having a good time. It's something we all like. And no, nobody feels insulted or out of touch with it. And so I think the show has managed to do that for at least some families, and that makes me happy. You've been listening to an interview with Daniel Handler whose latest books are Bottle Grove and All the Dirty Parts, and a series of unfortunate events can be still found on Netflix. <laughs> I believe it can, yes. There's still a few copies left on Netflix. <laughs> Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.